Uh, if you have a Bible with you, you can uh, take it out um, uh, and open to Ephesians. You could turn it on. Maybe you had an opportunity during, during Tito's tuning session to, to download the app. I don't know. That might have, I don't know. That could have been a good way to, to kill the time. Where's Tito? He's crying somewhere. Okay. Um, everybody give Tito a hug when he's done today, okay? Uh, we are in Ephesians, a New Testament letter, uh, so it's the middle of the New Testament. It's one of the Apostle Paul's writings, and uh, I've been preaching through this for a number of weeks now, and this is the, the closing section of Ephesians, so we're in chapter 6, the, the last uh, handful of verses there. Um, I, I realize we don't really write letters anymore. I mean, maybe some of you do have, have kept the art of writing a letter. Think of the last time you, you hand wrote a letter. But most of us do emails, right? I mean, emails, and now people don't even check the emails I send them anymore, I'm finding out. Apparently, I have to text you or call you if, you really, if I really want to communicate with you. But, but uh, you know, in, in the Bible times, in, in the ancient Near East, first century, they, they would write letters. That was their form of communication. It was the only platform to communicate on the mass scale. And they would write letters. And... Um, Paul wrote many letters, 13 of them got published in the New Testament, and uh, at the end of every letter, he would write kind of these personal remarks, and these the, uh, usually a closing benediction of some sort. It, if I were to contextualize it and give you a metaphor today, it's the closing signature line that some of you use, you know, it's the, the thing that you've automated on your email, and some of you use like, you know, pithy quotes, or, or a Bible verse, or maybe it's just your contact info. Well, this was kind of Paul's signature stamp, and he did this a lot. And I think when we read, read the Bible, sometimes we get to the end of maybe a, a book like, a letter like Ephesians, and we get to the end, and we kind of just pass over, and it's like, oh yeah, that's Paul just saying, you know, wrapping things up. And uh, I think we, we do ourselves a great disservice when we don't really go all the way to the end. So today we're going to look at just that closing little section in verses 21 uh, down through verse uh, 24. And so this is, this is the word of the Lord for us today. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along up on the screen or on your phone or your Bible or whatever you have available to you. Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we come now and we ask that the, the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of this man's mouth would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We currently live in a world that is more networked and connected than any other generation has ever been uh, prior to us. We have uh, platforms and availability to access people all across the world. We have an ability to keep up with our relationships in, in a variety of different ways that, that the world has really never known before. Uh, there was an article that was written in 2012 in The Atlantic, and it was titled, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? It's Facebook making this irony of ironies. I found this on Facebook, so there's that. So I, I, I found this article on Facebook, and the, the question that they were posing, and we're going to elaborate in this, this brief article, was, is Facebook actually making us lonely? At the beginning of the, um, 
of the article, they introduced uh, this woman. Her name was Yvette Vickers. Yvette Vickers was a, was a B-list movie star. She actually made some appearance in a, in a popular men's magazine, which will rename nameless from the pulpit. But she was a mildly famous person in her heyday. And she really didn't, you know, reach stardom, but she certainly wasn't alone and unknown. She had this mild level of fame. Well, apparently in her later years, before her, her imminent death, she had begun reaching out to people uh, to, in, in order to avoid this, this epidemic of loneliness, really. And she had no close family and no close friends, and so she began to reach out to some of her old fans and to kind of rekindle that that fame that she once enjoyed well Yvette Vickers actually she she passed away they didn't give the year the details but she passed away and nobody discovered her body for over a year Uh, her neighbor came into her home finally after uh, you know papers had piled I I don't know if it was papers but they they, there was some evidence that that nobody had been in the home there was no activity so her neighbor finally came into the home and, and discovered her body in her home and it was a sad picture, and, and the way this article presented it, uh, of this fear of loneliness that, that all of us actually experience to some varying degrees. And, and the loneliness that Yvette Vickers was trying to avoid was actually uh, epitomized when her death went viral. Uh, so the story of her death and her body being discovered a year later actually got over 16,000 Facebook posts and over 800 retweets. And, and it, it was kind of this sad irony that, that the thing that, that she wanted celebrated most was her life. And, and what actually got celebrated was her death. You see, <clears throat> we all have a growing fear of loneliness, uh, being alone. We do. And that fear actually kind of culminates into this anxiousness. So, so I'm going to play on these, these feelings of loneliness and anxiety today because I actually think that as we look at this passage, that's many of the things that the Apostle Paul would have been feeling. But for us today, and here's where I want to hook you in, for us today, you take our inner fears of loneliness that ultimately leads to anxiety, and you compile that with a fear that the world is imploding around us, and what you actually have is a, is a perfect cocktail recipe for people who are lonely, anxious, and ultimately depressed. It's really, it's really what, it's this, this irony that the world is created for us. And so the world, because it's created this, attempts to provide cures for this. There, there are many things that, that the world offers us, one of them being social media. This, this fantasizing about being somewhere else than where you are now. That's what social media offers us. It gives us these windows to look into other people's lives and to pretend like we're not living our own life. Uh, maybe social media is not your thing. Maybe, maybe that's not really hitting the buttons for you. But, but there's other things that the world offers us. It offers us clubs to join. It offers us hobbies to invest in. It offers us sports teams to become fanatical about. You know, the, the world offers us substances that will anesthetize and, and numb the feelings and oppress that to us, substances. Your careers give us this, this opportunity to, to, to just execute and perform in order to show our validation and our worth to the world. All of these things, none of them terrible. I love social media. I love sports. I don't have many hobbies. But, but all of these things... They're good and wonderful things, but they'll never provide the cure that our hearts ultimately want. And so, so what is the cure, Adam? What does the Bible say the cure for our lonely, anxious hearts is? 
And the cure, the Bible says, is the unchanging, the unbreakable, and the eternal love that God shows sinners in Christ. That's, that's actually what Ephesians has ultimately been showing us, is, is this, this magnified view of who God is in Christ and how that can change everything about our lives. And that's exactly what it did to the men that we're going to look at in, in this passage today. You see, the Bible says that when you discover a love that can turn your world upside down, it will do nothing less than change everything about you. It will reorder your entire life. It will, it will reprioritize everything you've ever thought about doing when you find rest in that kind of love. You see, God has designed your heart to ache until it finds rest in him. He has. That's how God made humanity, was to love and to serve him. And so today, the window of God's love is supremely tasted and experienced in one place, and, and you might not guess it, it's in the local church. You see, God has designed for the love of his son to come to his people in an extremely abnormal way through an ordinary local place filled with ordinary local people just like you and just like me. Here's the big takeaway from today's passage I want you to see. I want you to see that the cure for loneliness and anxiety is found by belonging and by believing. And the local church offers you that cure. So belonging and believing. Those are the two main things that I'll hang today's sermon on. Let's look first in verses 21 and 22 at belonging with believers. And then secondly, we'll look in verses 23 and 24 at believing the blessing. So let's look at belonging with the believers. Um, I've mentioned it already today, even if you haven't been with us for our sermon series. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter. So this was a real letter written by a real man in history to real people that lived real lives. Um, I, I don't know what your experience with the Bible is. It, this is not fiction. Um, this is not some, some urban legend. This is a real man in real experiences. Uh, let me just quickly give you an overview of who Paul was. Paul, at the point of writing this letter, he's almost 60 years old. Okay? He's, he's actually nearing the end of his life. Paul, at this point, was an unpublished author. Okay? He didn't know he was going to write half of the New Testament, just so you know that. Like, while he's writing this, he wasn't thinking, oh, yes, this is from God, and yes, they'll be preaching this soon. This was not Paul's reality, okay? Paul didn't know where, what he, ultimately his, his purpose would be and, and what the, the fruit of it would be, and, and namely in Bibles sitting on our laps. But, so he's unpublished at this point. He's been, he's been traveling all over the world, planting these small churches, establishing these groups of Christians who have heard the good news about Jesus. He's giving them elders and deacons to lead them, and then he's going and doing it again elsewhere. That's all he's doing. He's a serial church planner, and at this point, he hasn't had a mega church success, okay? Like, they don't have websites. He's not getting retweeted. He's not famous. He's not on videos. He's not on the radio. He's ultimately an unknown man. And here he is, at 60 years old, and he's in prison when he's writing this. Okay, so he's in Rome, He's under house arrest, which meant he, he, it wasn't the prison system we know, but he was under house arrest. He was probably chained to a Roman soldier at all time. He had some access to his colleagues like Tychicus, who we'll discover here in a minute. He had some communication. He had the ability to write on papyrus and to send these letters around so that they could know how he was doing and, and advance the gospel, those kinds of things. But ultimately, Paul was in a sad situation. Do you think Paul maybe at this point in his life had the temptation to be lonely or to be anxious about things? 
perhaps even dabble in depression. Those are very real realities that, that the Apostle Paul probably experienced. Um, here's, here's, the, here's the kicker for me on this passage when I, as I continue to study it. The, though his circumstances were dark and though they were perhaps heavy, Paul's concern was still not even with himself. He's concerned about the Christians at Ephesus. Did you, did you pick up on that? He's sending Tychicus so that they'll know he's doing okay because he wants their hearts to be encouraged. Which, it, it makes this, this kind of this tidy little theological connection that, 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 that we, particularly as Americans, need to hear is that, that Jesus didn't come just to rescue us as individuals. He came to rescue us as a family. And he came to make outsiders insiders in that family. And, and that's exactly what Paul's doing is he's, he's taking concern outside of his own circumstances for the larger family. We're introduced to Tychicus here. Um, Tychicus, he was in Paul's entourage, okay? So Paul, like our musicians today, he had like groupies. And Paul had a lot of people around him that were helping him with his travels, uh, Tychicus particularly was one of his letter carriers, so he would have, in fact, he, most people think that he was mentioning Tychicus because Tychicus would be the one that would hand, this, hand deliver this letter to the church at Ephesus. And so Tychicus was, he was in the inner circle of Paul. Um, likely he didn't have much to his name. He, like Paul, did not have a, you know, kind of a beefed up 401k plan for the, for the retired life. Like, this is what these men were sold out to do. Like the, the good news about Jesus had compelled them to give away everything in order to advance the good news. And so, so here's Tychicus, you know, assumingly interacting with Paul in prison, and he's being sent to the church at Ephesus in order to encourage their hearts. It gives us this unique window to look into and to see two men that were changed by this good news and that were bound by it. Like, we don't know much more about Tychicus. He's, you know, he's named a handful of times, but we, we don't really know. You know, we know Paul's upbringing. We know he was raised in a thoroughly religious house. He was, he was the Jew of all Jews. He was, he was being groomed under one of the finest rabbis. But Tychicus, who knows where he, he came up on the road. But he got caught up in this movement about Jesus. And it made this unique bond with Paul. A bond that would, would carry them to the end. Paul would be executed, not in this imprisonment. He'd be released a few years more of traveling ministry, and then he'd be executed a handful of years later. And so what we see is, um, here's the connection for us, is that true belonging requires an unbreakable bond. Okay, The bond that is discovered in Christian love is like no other bond. And here's why. All the other bonds, think about the bonds that connect you in your relationships with people. Like hobbies, I get it. We, we have hobbies. If you're in a bicycling club, that's the bond, right? If, you, if you're the same NFL team, that's the bond. You know, if, you, if you're the family that loves to hang out all the time, that's the bond, okay? If you have certain career interests and, and you're all about advancing and promoting and all those kinds of things, that's the bond. All good things, not ultimate things. And here's where they fail. The bonds are fragile. They break. They're not unchanging. Because hobbies change. 
You break your leg and you're no longer in the bicycling club for a while. Your teams lose. Your families disagree. You know, your clubs become annoying at some point. And so all of them are fickle. They're all changing. And so there's this, this dynamic that it's, it's not a bond that's strong enough to hold you together. I wonder if your relationship with the church has been primarily based on those type of affinities. Like, has your relationship with other people been primarily the surface level things that we engage in? Good things, they, they connect us initially, nothing wrong with small talk, I get that. But have, have you remained on the fringes of relationships because you're afraid that the bond isn't strong enough to hold you together? Because I'd imagine Tychicus and Paul may have had those experiences, I'm speculating here. Have you been unwilling to maybe even create new relationships with people that are not like you? They don't act like you. They don't talk like you. They don't look like you. They don't live like you. And so you think, how can I do life with them? And the reality is the bond of Christian love is stronger than any of those things. And we see it happening here. The bond of Christian love is the bond of being loved by Jesus. Okay? That's the bond that Christians share. The fact that the God of the universe has come down to us and loved us immensely. That's what Ephesians has been growing. I, I hope, as, certainly as I've been preaching and preparing for the, this, this series, it's this increased love for the love that God has shown us. Like, like how can we not love when we've been loved like this? That's the, that's the thrust of Ephesians. But here's our problem, is we forget it. We have gospel amnesia. And that's why I tell you the gospel every week. We have gospel amnesia. We think that primarily what Jesus came to do was to make us good boys and good girls, and he, he didn't do that. He came to reconcile us with his Father. But we refuse to believe it. So let's, look at, let's be reminded in the closing verses as we look at verses 23 and 24 about believing the blessings. I like to think of myself as a healthy eater. I'd say four, four to five days a week, I'd call myself a healthy eater. I'm pretty good. I don't have cheat you know, meals or cheat days. I kind of have cheat weekends or streaks. But for the most part, I'm a healthy eater. And so over the, you know, as I mature as a man, I, I try to realize the things that we're supposed to be eating. People are telling us that we're supposed to be eating these, these plants that even animals don't eat, namely kale. Um, <laughs> We're supposed to be eating all of these things, and there's, there's a label that's put on these things that taste terrible, and they're called superfoods. You know, we've all heard it. You know, you're, you're, you're cruising down the aisle at Whole Foods if you're, if you're uppity, or Smith's if you're like the rest of us, and you're cruising down, and if you're on a healthy streak, you see something that's plastered with superfoods, and immediately you're drawn to it. That, at least I am. Well, what I found out, again, another article online, love them, uh, what I found out is superfoods super actually means nothing. It, it's actually a marketing ploy and it's a gimmick that you can actually call whatever you want superfoods. Now, I am not arguing that kale's not super. It probably is. Chia seeds are probably super. But um, the, the point being that there have been words that have been hijacked by our culture and ultimately made useless. And one of those is super words, superfoods. I think we do the same thing with Bible words. You see, we're going to encounter three words here, peace, love, and grace, 
that have become gimmicky and really ploys of the marketing system in Christianity. You hear words like peace, love, and grace, and you think this is like the hippie version of Christianity. Like, peace, love, and grace, man. Have a great day. No. Let me recapture and recaptivate those words for you because I don't think Paul's just doing that. I don't think Paul's just throwing these words out just to grab our attention and to kind of give us this little bit of a, a, a high as we, as we leave Ephesians. You see, Bible words have lost meaning to many of us, but hear these words again. Peace, love, and grace. Let's just, let's just take each of them in turn for a moment. Peace. The primary question that Christianity asks and then answers is this. How can I know that I am right with God? Okay? How can I know that I have peace with God Almighty? That's actually one of the, the, the baseline questions that the entire Bible seeks to answer for us. Now, there is a garden variety of answers that, that we've been sold as gimmicks employed. Let me, let me see if any of these sound familiar to you. So how can I know God will accept me? Well, one of them is through self-sustained efforts. This is the behavior modification model. I know I can be right with God if I am that good boy and good girl. If I do more often than not what is right and not what is, and not what is wrong, ultimately God will accept me. This is the version that believes that God's justice system is based on the scales, right? If my good outweighs my bad, God will ultimately accept me. The Bible will have none of this. Another version that we tell ourselves is a possibility for knowing that we can be made right with God is self-motivated interest. This is, this is the flavor of the age. It sounds something like this. Well, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and I'll do the best that I can do, and you do the best that you can do, and at the end, it'll all work out. Surely God's got to be loving like that. Like, surely he's just going to kind of vet us on the, the general basis that we're all pretty much not serial killers. And if that works out for you and it'll work out for me, then I can know I'm right with God. Now, for you, those might sound like completely viable answers. For me, they're terribly frightening for a number of reasons. One is that God has presented himself in a completely different light than any judge or any, any worldly man would ever prefigure himself to be. You see, God has revealed himself in the scriptures as a God who cannot be approached without preparation. In other words, there is nothing short of perfection that can come into the presence of God Almighty. Nothing. Uh, I'm reminded of a, a story in the Old Testament. Uh, Uzziah, oh, it's coming off the, Uzziah and somebody else. And, and, and they're taking the Ark of the Covenant, which God commanded them you shall not touch this. These men had to actually carry the Ark of the Covenant by a pole because God told them not to touch it. And they're trekking this to the city and they're bringing it in and it begins to fall. And like any good man, what do those men do? They try to stop it. They try to catch it. And if you're familiar with this story, here's how it plays out. Those men die. God would have none of their, he told them, don't touch the ark. They touch the ark, immediate death. Now that in my mind is frightening, right? Like if that's how God has shown him to be, then that can be a frightening thing. And you say, well, God, Adam, that's, that's that God of the Old Testament. Well, now listen to how God tells us our peace comes to us now. 
You see, in later, or actually in the Old Testament, around that situation, there was a blessing that God would give his people. It's in Numbers chapter 6, if you're a note taker. In Numbers chapter 6, I use this blessing often at the end of our services. It talks, uh, this is Aaron blessing God's people. And it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is that ironic blessing that, that God would show his goodness, his kindness, his faithfulness, and ultimately the blessing concludes with peace. And, you know, that, that didn't come for free. Did you know that the way that we can know we have peace is that Jesus took the opposite of that blessing for us? You know what, Jesus, he didn't come just to make us good boys and good girls. He came to bear the curse that was coming our way. He came to stand in the breach between men who would grab the ark against God and ultimately would experience death. And he came and he did this. Instead of the Lord blessing him, he says, the Lord curse you. The Lord hide his face from you. The Lord forget you. That's exactly what Jesus experienced on the cross. That the Lord was, Jesus was experiencing cursing, the hiding of God, the forgetfulness of God. That God would show his anger. That God would cast him away from his presence. That God would frown upon him. And that God would ultimately forsake him. Jesus came and he took the cursing that was coming our way. And so how do you know that you can be made right with God? Because Jesus took the curse for you. That's the good news, friends. The good news is that the God-man came and he took what was coming our way. And so when you are asked the question, how can I know that I have peace with God? The answer is only because of what Jesus has done for me. And so peace be to the brothers and that sisters as well is that statement. We have peace with God. Well, secondly, the thing he says is that we have love. Again, Ephesians is this, this ever-increasing love of God shown to us in Christ. Like, if there ever was a letter for you to read from beginning to end and to be increased for love of God in Christ, it's what we've read through and preached through. You see, the more you know that Jesus loves you, the more you're able to love Jesus. Because if everything you do revolves around the latter, namely your love for Jesus, you will run out of fuel. You will. You'll never love Jesus enough. But the more you see his love for you, the more it will change you. Um, the end of the verse, you know, so there's this trifold, love with faith, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. You see, love is the theme of Christianity. Like, Jesus didn't come to take our curse just out of obligation. Jesus didn't come to take our curse because he felt sorry for us. Jesus didn't come to take our curse because he didn't think we could take it, because ultimately we could take it. Jesus came to take our curse because he loved us. And I want to know if you really believe that. Do you believe that Jesus actually loves you? Like, I know you've heard it a million times, and, and it's become trite to us, but, but do you believe that, that Jesus himself loves you? And he doesn't even just love you. He actually likes you. Like, just sit on that for a minute. I know, we all know, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
but we haven't written the hymn that says Jesus likes me. I mean, I think some of you need to hear that, that Jesus actually likes you. The thought that Jesus could enjoy you, like he made you, the Bible says, and he made you the way that he wanted you to be. And he made you that way because he not only loves you, but because he enjoys you. That's really good news for us today. But the, the dominating theme is actually the third one, and that's grace. Um, if you look at the very last two words, at least in the English Standard Version, different Bibles might do different things. That word incorruptible, there, there's two options. Uh, this, and this isn't, you know, you know, fringing on our authority of the Bible. There, there are some things where we could, we could kind of go different ways. It's either describing our love, love incorruptible, or it's describing grace. And lots, you know, my job is to read commentaries and scholars. And so a lot of scholars think it actually goes with grace. And so, you know, I don't know better than them. So I'm going with that. Um, and so this incorruptible grace is, is what, what, what Paul ends this letter with. And actually every single one of Paul's letters ends with this theme of grace. This idea of we get what we don't deserve. So what do we not deserve? Well, we don't deserve peace with God, and we don't deserve God's love. What do we deserve? Well, we deserve enmity with God, and we deserve God's division, and we deserve God's hot wrath and his anger. That's, that's actually what we deserve. And so grace, it's the great equalizer and the undermining pin for all of us. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. Because nobody deserves peace, and because none of you sitting here deserve God's love, when we get it, how shall we respond? Utter amazement. There's no other way to respond to God's grace than to be amazed. Listen, do you know that the work that Jesus has done for you is sufficient to cover and pardon all of your sins, past, present, and future? I mean, all of your past. I mean, he knows your history. You've never hidden an act or thought from God. He knows you inside and out. And Jesus pardons you fully. Your, your present, currently trending messiness, he knows it. And he pardons it. Your future, this is, this is mind-boggling. Your sinfulness that you have yet to even commit, he knows it. And he pardons it. Now that is grace unspeakable. Grace that pardons, not only pardons past, present, and future sins, but it now empowers us. It doesn't just pardon us in order to live now according to our own strength. In other words, giving us a clean slate. It empowers us. Because when you get grace like that, it has to change you. You can't live like you used to anymore. That's what it did for Paul, that's what it did for Tychicus, and that's what it ought to do for us. So true, be true believing requires unchangeable truths. I, I want to read just a few verses from chapter 1 of Ephesians, and I want you to ask yourself if you really believe these things. Because these are the unchangeable truths that God has shown us in Ephesians. He has told us, most of these are coming from chapter 1. I won't quote the verses. He has told us that in Christ, the believer has received 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everything is ours. He's told us that before the foundation of the world, before he made anything, he chose you. He knew you intimately, and he picked you because he loves you and he likes you. He's told us that he predestined us for adoption, that he, he knew that we would be estranged sons and daughters, and he said, I'm bringing you into my family. And finally, that he has a plan, that he's uniting everything together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Do you believe those unchangeable truths? Because when you believe them, they begin to relieve things in your life, things like loneliness and things like anxiety. Now, I am not undermining the reality of those things. Those are chemically th chemical things. Those are emotional things. I'm, I'm not saying just, just be loved by Jesus and, and your, your world is going to be cotton candy and flowers. I am not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting is that the believer can find relief in these truths. And, and maybe today you're here and you're not a believer. You know, maybe you're not walking with the Lord. First, let me just say thank you for being here. That, that's a, a bold move. You've come to the, to the source. You've come to the fountain where that relief can be found. And so my hope and my invitation even to you today is that, that these would be words that would be removed from this book and that they'd be written on your heart. That these would no longer be truths that you simply want to analyze and critique in you know, biblical criticism and, and undermine the whole Christian way. Would you hear these things? And would you even receive them even today? Um, I, 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 I'm going to end with this. I close, or I read, uh, or I watch TEDx talks a lot. TEDx, you guys familiar with these? Stands for uh, Technology, Education, and Design. These are short little snippet talks. In fact, we have our very own TEDx speaker. Oh, she's not here today. Maybe she's listening on a podcast, but we have our very own TEDx speaker in our church. But nonetheless, I watched a TEDx video this week, and um, this guy, he was, he was British, so he could have read the phone book to me, and I would have been interested, but he had this accent, and he was, he was talking about um, rethinking addiction. He was talking about rethinking the way that we approach addiction, and particularly he was talking about substance addiction to, to drugs and, and to alcohol, and... Um, he, he mentioned these two different kind of veins of, of the conversation. He talked about how in the Vietnam era, a lot of the soldiers were, were using opiates and heroin uh, while they were in Vietnam. He talked about them, and then he talked about kind of how we've done testing on mice with drugs. And, and I'll connect those somehow. But basically, he was saying that the way we have typically treated addiction is primarily through telling, punishing them. Basically saying, you know, stop doing what you're doing, look how you're abusing yourself, and punishing them. And he observed that in both the Vietnam era and in the mice study, that when you remove them from their environments and you put them into a new environment, it actually changed their behavior. And so, so like, for instance, the Vietnam soldiers, everybody was afraid that they were just going to come back just hooked on these drugs and just using, and, and, and that was the, the great fear. But when they came home, that wasn't necessarily the case. The same thing with the mice, you know, when they were giving them these, these drugs, that of course they were going to use them, but when you remove them and, and you put them in this colony of other mice and you gave them a variety of different options, not just the drug, they, they wouldn't even go to the drug by choice. And so there was this keen observation that it has less to do with the person and more to do with the environment 
Again, not undermining how addiction works. Some of that's genetic and, and all that. But the addiction is about your cage or your environment. Addiction, and here was his kind of his main point, addiction is about bonding. Okay? We bond with something because it gives us relief. You know, drugs and substance being one of those things. But now let me broaden that. He didn't do this in the video, but let me do that. We, all of us, are addicts. We want relief. And so we look to all kinds of things to bond with. We bond with romance. We, we bond with families. We bond with substances. We bond with intellectualism. We bond with friendships that are unhealthy. We bond with our kids that can be unhealthy. We make all of these bonds. And the problem is none of them give us the ultimate relief we need. And so what bonds and connections do we have to relieve our addictions, our addictions to sin, our addictions to ourselves? And the answer is the environment. The answer is in the local church. You see, belonging with believers and believing the blessings is where those cures are found. And it's my hope and my deepest desire that we would be a people that would commit to both of those things together, belonging and to believing. May that be true of us today. Let's pray and ask God to do that. Father, <clears throat> we confess that we struggle with loneliness, even anxiety and depression. And Lord, those things are real. We feel them. We sense them. And Lord, I don't want to be trite about them. But Lord, we do want to look to your word and how you've promised us that your love will never leave us. It'll never forsake us because Jesus was forsaken for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would deepen our hearts, that you would work this courage to commit to each other in the church and certainly to commit to you, um, and that you would help us to both belong and to believe, Lord. Would you do that even in our church today? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.